Well, today we come to Psalm 98, and we have been in this glorious sort of mountaintop uh, experience of the Psalms. These Psalms are majestic. The fact that they're all clustered together, uh, again, we, we can almost become worn out with the, the praise uh, the the praise over the majesty of God it can, it can become familiar as as anything can be uh, and each of these psalms uh, needs to be just enjoyed and delighted in for its own sake and in its own context almost uh, the, the, this this batch of psalms is so rich in reminding us about the reigning of our God and the majesty of our God and the calls to sing praise to him that it can it can overwhelm the senses uh, if you will well, today in this psalm, once again, we are called to worship. We've been using as our calls to worship the psalm, the previous psalm, as we've read it, and then next, you know, next week I'll use Psalm ninety-eight as our call to worship. These psalms have all been calling us to worship. They've been calling us to recognize the God, our God, who reigns over heaven and earth. That is, they are doing to us what we're to do with the, with the nations. Right? They're discipling us. They're teaching us, and they're training us to look to him. They are training us to sing praise to him. And this is important because as we read in, in Romans chapter 1, which was our New Testament reading today, it is not our nature to do that. Our nature is not to sing praise to God. Our nature is to worship animals, four-footed creatures, crawling things, birds of the air, one another. <laughs> our, our nature is to worship anything other than God. And so these psalms again and again and again for the people of God summon us back and orient us toward the one true God that we might worship him. What we're doing here is not normal. Worshiping is normal. We're all made to worship. We all worship something. But what you and I are doing here today is not normal, and that is worshiping the one triune God. This, what we're doing here, we do by the gift of God, by the summoning of God. And we should rejoice in it because it's not normal. Romans 1 is normal. Debased minds are normal. Idolatry is normal. Refusing to glorify God and give thanks to him is normal. Suppressing truth in unrighteousness is normal. That's what we are by nature. But because of Christ, we are here. And because of him, and because of the Spirit, we have been given eyes to see. And therefore, when we read Psalm 98 and Psalms of this batch here, it stirs our hearts because it resonates with us. It strikes a chord with us. We, we see God this way. I was just asking my, my uh, seniors a couple days ago, what is it that the world, we go out, we see that the heavens declare the glory of God, the firmament shouts forth his praise. And in, in Romans 1, he even says, the world sees it, they understand it, they are without excuse. So I asked them, what do you see that they don't see? In, in 2 Corinthians 4, we're told that the God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers. Blinded them to what? What, what don't they see that you see? Because Paul is saying in Romans 1, they can actually see and understand. They, they've seen the power of God. They've seen his invisible attributes manifested within creation. What is it that you see that they don't see? And the answer is glory. Glory. Right? They, they, what they see uh, repulses them. John Calvin says that, that humanity, 
sinful humanity walks around the dazzling theater of the glory of God with blinders on, right? They like like horses who have those blinders on the side of the we have like this shield over our eyes, and and we don't want to lift our eyes and see it because we hate the glory. It, it, it's despicable. I don't want to hear about a God who will impose on my life. And so they have to constantly try to plug their ears to the singing, the choirs of the heavens, right? They have to, they have to shield their eyes from the glory that is revealed in creation. They can see it. They hate it. You see it, and your heart sings. You see the glory in it. That's what Paul says. They refuse to give thanks, and they refuse to glorify God. But we see the same thing, and our hearts sing. And we read Psalm 98, and our hearts sing. And again, this is not because I'm better than that guy out there who hates it. It's because God, who is rich in mercy, has given me eyes to see. He has given me a heart to love it. And I'm thankful for that. And you should be thankful for that as well. Well, this psalm, again, calling us to praise, does so by pointing us backwards and forwards in our praising. That is to say that we praise God for what he has done and we praise him for what we are absolutely confident, filled with hope that he is going to do. And so I want us to think about that today. You can see in the breakdown of the psalm, uh, in, the, in the spacing of the psalm here in Psalm 98, you can see the psalm kind of neatly breaks into these three stanzas, if you will. Well, let's look at the very beginning in verses 1 through 3 as we have the call to worship again and the call to sing. Oh, sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord a new song. Now, this idea of singing to the Lord a new song does not mean that we constantly have to be writing new songs, though, again, it's utterly appropriate to do that, right? As we grow and as we encounter the glory of God, it does make our heart want to sing. And so praise God for Christian songwriters and Christian hymn writers and Christian poets who find new and beautiful ways to proclaim the glory of God. That is wonderful. What the, the calls in the Bible to sing a new song is, is to celebrate a new act of redemption, a new act of God's salvation. When God would act in history to deliver his people, they would stop and they would sing about it. And the example, I think we talked about this in one of the earlier psalms, because you hear this a couple times in these psalms, right? When Israel gets across the Red Sea and off the other side, and the bodies of the Egyptians are washing up on the shore, and there's chariot wheels washing up and horses washing up, Moses gets to the other side, the people delivered from the, the awful enemy of the Egyptians, and they sing a new song. Moses leads them in song over the deliverance. When God delivers... God's people sing. And the call here to sing a new song is to recognize the deliverance, the victory, the salvation that our God has wrought. And we're going to look, I'll look in a minute at Revelation chapter 5, where in heaven we hear, and they, the people gathered around the throne sang a new song. And we'll, we'll look at that song here in a second. Now, notice what we're singing this song over, and it has to do with the deliverance of God's people. And while there's six things here, they come in couplets. The uh, Hebrew poetry and the Psalms often work like this. Unlike like sort of our, our poetry, one of the characteristics of Hebrew poetry, and when you read the Psalms, 
is that it it kind of spe- it writes in couplets. That is, you have you have um, what what is called parallelism. So the first line will say something, and the next line will repeat it with a different angle, maybe expanding on the first line, giving you a different perspective on the first line. So even though there's six things here, three things are being said, if you will, but in six ways. It's it's a just the way the Hebrews did it. It's a beautiful way to do it. So let's look at why we are to sing a new song unto our Lord. Oh, sing to the Lord a new song. For he has done marvelous things, meaning his right hand and his holy arm have gained him the victory. The Lord has gained victory over his enemies. And here we can think of that language of the, the strong arm of God that has come to deliver his people. You know, when Israel was in uh, bondage in Egypt, that was the idea. By my strong, by my outstretched hand, I delivered you. The Lord's mighty arm comes and delivers his people. And that's what we're being told to sing of here. He's done marvelous things. His right arm has gained him the salvation. Now, again, let's put this while we hear Israel singing about this in Psalm 98. Let's, let's also jump ahead to our time and let's stand in Matthew 28, where we had our, our, our word of exhortation today. And let's stand on the other side of the cross in the empty grave. Whatever deliverance Israel saw, and they saw, as you know, some awesome and mighty deliverances, right? I mean, again, the bodies of the Egyptians washing up on the shore of the Red Sea and the horses in the chariot, and wow, the Lord split the Red Sea and made a highway for them and then destroyed his enemy. Wow, wouldn't, you, wouldn't it be amazing to see that? We think, wow, that would be amazing to see. Or some of the, you know, just walking around the walls of Jericho and then all of a sudden they all come crumbling down and you get the victory. We say, wow, wouldn't that be awesome to see? And yeah, it'd be awesome to see all these things. But you have seen something much more awesome. Peter says, the prophets long to see what you have seen. They could only imagine. I mean, the walls of Jericho falling and the Red Sea splitting and the 10 plagues and bread coming out of heaven. That's all amazing. It's nothing compared to what you have seen because you saw the gates of death broken down and you saw the Messiah come walking out of a tomb. You've seen God in the person of his son bearing our flesh, bearing our sin, die upon a cross so that you may have deliverance from death. I mean, this is what you've seen. I mean, the, the splitting of the Red Sea is nothing. It's it, Again, it's like playing with Monopoly money and then, and then being given a true inheritance of millions of dollars. I mean, it's just not... The Monopoly money is exciting. I mean, listen, buying Boardwalk and, and putting hotels up there and, and crushing your friends. I mean, that's a, that's a wonderful thing to do, but it's, it's, it's nothing. It's nothing compared to having the real inheritance. And you and I, you talk about seeing marvelous things. I mean, why do Christians sing? We sing because we know that our God has done marvelous things. His right hand and his old holy arm have gained him the victory. Now notice past tense, right? We look back at what he's done and he has gained the victory. Jesus stands on the other side of the grave in Matthew 28 and says, hey, all power and authority has been given to me in heaven and earth. I have it in my hand. Think about that. All authority. Not, hey, listen, I have a lot of authority, but so does the President of the United States. 
I have a lot of authority, but so does the president of the CCP. You know, I have a lot of authority, but so do the kings of this and the powers of that. And look, I got to deal with legislation and I got to deal with this legislative body and that ruling party. You know, no, 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 no. I have all authority. All. And it's not just in heaven. It's on earth. I have all authority in heaven and earth. I mean, the right hand of God has gained, past tense, the victory. When Jesus walked out of that grave, he had all authority in heaven and earth. There is literally nothing that can even approach opposing him. Zero. We have seen the mighty hand of God, his holy arm, gain him the victory. He indeed has done marvelous things. And then secondly, in verse 2, again, the second set of parallel uh, things. Verse 2. Here's also why we praise him, right? Sing to the Lord a new song for, we gain the first thing, and now secondly, for the Lord has made known his salvation, his righteousness, he has revealed in the sight of the nations. He has revealed this to the whole world. I mean, this is not something done in a corner. That's what the, the prophets and apostles say. And that's why Jesus is going to tell his disciples, hey, go out into all nations. This is something done right in the public eye. Jews and Gentiles gathered to see it. Right? The Romans and the Jews, all there. The Lord has made his righteousness known. And Paul picks that up in Romans chapter 1. Right? When he says, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation for all who believe, first to the Jew and then to the Greek, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed. From faith to faith as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Right? In the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. That is, in the gospel, in the coming of Jesus Christ, there's many ways we can understand this, and I know how Martin Luther understood it but but i'm taking a slightly different angle on that verse in the gospel the righteousness of god i.e the faithfulness of god he has kept his word he has done for his people what he said he would do for them he said he was going to deliver them and you might have wondered i mean it's been thousands of years here is he going to do it how's he going to do it and there on the cross in the sight of the nations god has kept his word God has revealed his salvation and his righteousness to the world. And not just his faithfulness, but his true holiness and righteousness, right? He has shown to the world, I will not let sin go unpunished. I will, even if I have to pour out my wrath on my own son, who is willing to take it for the world, my righteousness will be manifested to the world. Now, again, the world doesn't want to see this, right? The very next verse for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against the godlessness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. Right? The world, it's been revealed to the nations, but the nations don't want to see it. Again, like Calvin said, they walk through the dazzling theater of God's glory with the blinders on. They, they cover their eyes. They refuse to look up and behold it. But it has been revealed to the nations, right? In the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. So we have seen him do marvelous things. And he has made known his salvation. That is, his righteousness has been revealed to the nations. And then thirdly, the third thing that we, uh, verse three, that we, why do we sing a new song? Verse three, because he has remembered his mercy 
and his faithfulness to the house of Israel. Right there it is. God has kept his word. God said he was going to deliver us and he has done it. Right? It's like, again, this idea of God remembering. It's, a, it's an idea that is not familiar to us. Like it makes us feel awkward to think about God remembering something. Right? When the rainbow is in the sky in, in Genesis chapter 9, he puts the rainbow in the sky. I ask my students all the time, why is the rainbow in the sky? They says, oh, it, it's, it's so that we know that God will never judge the earth by a flood again. I said, that's great. Who's it there to remind? And they said, well, us. It's there to remind us. I said, go read it. That's not what it says. It says it's there to remind God that when God sees the rainbow, he will remember his promises to you. And they say that just bothers them. Like, what do you mean it has to, God, as if God needs a reminder? It's, it is for us, but it's to remind us that God remembers. It's when we see the rainbow, we know God is remembering. It's not because he's forgotten. He never forgets. But it's a reminder to us that he remembers. He sees the rainbow and remembers his promise to us. That is to say, God is a God who does not forget. He constantly remembers. He makes a promise to his people. He remembers to keep it. And this is good news for us because, again, we're a people who have promises made to us. Yes, we have seen him do marvelous things in the cross and in the resurrection, but there are still promises yet to be fulfilled. And we know that our God remembers. So sing to the Lord a new song because he's done amazing things and he has gained victory and he's made his salvation known and he has remembered his faithfulness to his people. He has not forgotten his people. And I tell you that's important because there are times in which God's people feel forgotten. Right? Psalm 22, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? There are times in which we feel as if we're forgotten. We feel as if God is not acting. We feel as if things that are happening are inconsistent with the promises that he's made. But that's why you have to have psalms like this that we sing because we, it directs our eyes back. Yeah, but look at what you know. Look at what you have seen happen. You have seen him do marvelous things. And therefore, by faith, you know right now you are not forgotten. God has kept his promises to his people. So first we have this call to sing a new song and then we're given the reasons why. Then in the second stanza, again, the call back now. Sing to the Lord a new song. Here's why, because of all these amazing things. And then in the second stanza, we would come back now and it's just filled with imperatives, filled with exhortations. Just listen to it again. Shout joyfully to the Lord, all the earth. Break forth in song. Rejoice and sing praises. Sing to the Lord with the harp, with the harp and the sound of a psalm, with trumpets and the sound of a horn. Shout joyfully before the Lord, the King. Wow. Shout, sing, rejoice, break forth, shout, sing. This is the characteristic of the worship of the people of God. Again, it's one of the reasons why our singing and our praise should not be limp and tepid. Right? We should sing and shout to the Lord because we've seen him do marvelous things. We shouldn't whimper forth our praise. You know, we should declare it and sing it and shout it for joy. And here, let me, let me turn then to uh, Revelation 4 because here you get a beautiful picture of this. You get a beautiful picture of what's happening in heaven, if you will, sort of that heavenly praise, and you have the language of a new song. This is when the Lamb 
is uh, upon the throne, or he, he, he comes to the one seated on the throne, and he takes a scroll out of his hand. And you'll remember that at the beginning of Revelation 5, a real crisis has happened. I mean, literally, John begins weeping and weeping at the beginning of, of Revelation 5 because there's no one found worthy to take the scroll that's in God's hand. God has this scroll, these promises that he's made, this amazing plan for the salvation of his people. Wow, that's awesome. We've heard all of his prophecies in the Old Testament. Aren't they wonderful? Yeah, but who's going to accomplish them? There's literally no one able. We've gone through the list. We tried Adam. We tried Noah. He bombed. We tried Abraham. He failed. He slept with his wife's servant. We, we tried Jacob. He's a liar. We tried you know, uh, uh, Joseph, and he has his problem. We tried David. He's sleeping with you know, Uriah's wife and killing Uriah. We tried Solomon. He started out well, but then ended up with a thousand wives and worshiping other gods. Like, who's the guy? Is there anyone here worthy? And the answer is no. You start to tremble. You start to worry. And that's how this uh, chapter begins. You got this amazing scroll, but the elder, the, you know, they're searching around. Is there anyone worthy to open the scroll? And the answer is no. There's no one found in heaven or earth or under the earth who's worthy and able to open the scroll. This is a real crisis. And John weeps and he weeps and he weeps. And then the, the uh, elder comes and, and points him to, to the lamb, you know, the, the lion of the tribe of Judah, who turns out to be a lamb slain at standing. He is worthy to open the scroll and to loose its seals, right? Because he was slain. He did what he is the only one worthy and he has done it. By his holy arm, he has gained the victory. He has taken the scroll. He is the one worthy to break its seals and now to accomplish the purpose of God in the salvation of his people. And what do the people do? Right? Verse 7, Then he came and took the scroll out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. Now when he had taken the scroll and the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each having a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, right? We've seen the Lord do amazing and mighty things and listen to this and, right, there's nothing tepid about, about this. And they sang a new song saying, you are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals for you were slain and you have redeemed us to God by your blood out of every tribe and every tongue and people and nation. And you have made us kings and priests to our God and we shall reign on the earth. Then I looked and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne, the living creatures and the elders, and the number of them was 10,000 times 10,000 and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. And then it cascades and it gets even just this cascading blessing and praise that now goes out to the thousands of thousands. And then and then every creature which is in heaven and earth and under the earth and such as are in the sea. We can hear resonance with our psalm today. And all that are in them I heard saying, blessing and honor and glory and power be to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, amen. And the 24 elders fell down and worshiped him who lives forever and ever. There's a picture of cosmic, <laughs> glorious worship, right? They see the victory of the Lord Jesus Christ, the worthy Lamb of God who has taken the scroll. And again, 
brothers and sisters, we stand on that side of the, we too have seen this. We have seen it. Don't look away from it. Don't be distracted by the wind and the waves. You have seen it. You're part of that choir. You're, you're part of the ones who sing that prayer. You're part of that cascading, thunderous praise that worships the lamb that is seated on his throne. And so the call of this psalm then is to rejoice, to shout, to sing, break forth, play the trumpet, sing the psalms, and worship the Lord. And then finally, it directs our eyes forward. So this psalm begins by this praise, by looking back. We've seen these marvelous things he's done. So let it rip, church, sing out to the Lord. And then in verse 7 and 8, we have the, the, recognition, the recognition, not only will the nations do this, but all of nature will do it, as we heard in, in uh, even in Revelation 5. Let the sea roar in fullness, the world and those who dwell in it. Let the rivers clap their hands. Let the hills be joyful together before the Lord. Now notice it ends by directing our eyes forward. For he is coming to judge the earth. With righteousness he will judge the world and the peoples with equity. So we sing, that call to sing, shout, break forth, rejoice, is right there in the middle of this praise. So our praise goes both ways. We look back and we have seen him do wonderful and marvelous things, but we also sing because we know that that one, the one who has all authority in heaven and earth, is coming. He's coming back. Now, remember here, they're singing this in the Old Testament. They too had seen him do marvelous, wonderful things. And they were told, rejoice because he's coming. And we've seen that come true. He has come. Yet the same truth is to us. He is coming again. And here we stand in the middle, having seen him do these marvelous things and knowing that the day is coming in which he will come again. Because we look and we say, okay, you have all authority in heaven and earth, but it doesn't always look like you have all authority. Why, if you have all authority in heaven and earth, are you allowing this or that to take place? If I had all authority in heaven and earth, I would never let this take place. But he is sovereign, and he is good, and he is wise, and he doesn't explain his ways to us. But here's what he does say. He is coming again. And on that day, notice what will happen. For he is coming to judge the earth. With righteousness, he will judge the world and the peoples with equity. That is to say, he is coming to set all things right. And this is so important for us. It's what allows us to deal with the turmoil of the age that we all have to deal with. Right? He is going to set it right. It is. And this is a burden lifted off our shoulder. That's why I said, Jesus says, come to me, all you who labor and heavy laden, I will give you rest. This is your rest. The weight of the world does not hang on your shoulders. It is not for me to set everything right. He has already taken care of it on the cross and in his resurrection, and he will one day set all things to rights. Now, I'm called to be faithful in this moment. I was just reading in Lord of the Rings, you know, when uh, um, Christina's leading a little book club on that at the school, and so I said, well, this is good for me, a challenge to kick my rear end to read it. I'm embarrassed that I haven't read it, read it, so I, okay, fine, I'll read it. And it's great because Frodo is talking with Gandalf, and, and 
Gandalf is telling him how Mordor's growing. It's getting bad. It's going to affect the Shire. And Bilbo left you that ring, and it's going to have to be dealt with. And Frodo, you're going to have to deal with it. And Frodo says, I understand all this darkness. He's overwhelmed by the darkness that Gandalf is describing. But he says, I, I, I wish that this wouldn't have come in my time. And, you know, I, it, it's fine, all this darkness, but why couldn't it have come, like, in another generation for them to deal with? Or maybe next generation for them to deal with? Why has it got to fall to me? And Gandalf says to him, I wish that too. So does everyone who lives to see such times. But that is not for them to decide. All that is left for us to decide is what we will do with the time we are given. It's not for me to decide what time I'm born in and what time I have to deal with. That's left to God. All that's given to me is, okay, are you going to be faithful in this time or not? And what allows you to be faithful in this time is to know that the darkness, that defeating the darkness and dealing with the inequities and dealing with all the problems and all the chaos does not hang on me. It has been dealt with in the cross and it will be dealt with when he comes again. That's the, that's the reality that we have to anchor ourselves to. He has come and he is coming. And in the meantime, going back to the, uh, uh, the Great Commission, as Jesus now says, okay, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Therefore, go, Frodo, right? Go, go do what you got to do with the time you've been given. But know this, that in the time between the times, this time that we are now in, lo, I am with you. I am with you always, even to the end of the age. I am with you. And he sends his church out into very difficult circumstances. Most of the ones that he sent out in the Great Commission die. For the faith. But go. Go knowing that I have, the one who sends you is the one who has all authority in heaven and earth. Nothing can oppose you. You cannot lose. And know that I, the one who sends you, I am with you now and to the end of the age. And I will come, picking up on Psalm 98 now, and I will come and I will set all things right. I will make your minuscule little efforts fruitful for the kingdom and I will come and set all things right. And if we believe that, and if we live in light of that, then we can be at peace in the midst of the storm. If we believe that, then we can be patient. We can be faithful, knowing that victory is his. And if we are in him, then it is ours as well. So church, people of God, sing. Sing to the Lord a new song. Shout joyfully. Break forth in song. Sing to the Lord. Rejoice with the sound of the trumpet. Shout joyfully before the Lord, the King. For he has come, and he is indeed coming again. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you. We thank you that you have allowed us to be in a place in history where we have seen your right hand exposed and seen you do mighty and amazing things, marvelous things, Father. You have defeated death. You have defeated all principalities and powers. There is nothing that can oppose you. We have seen it in the cross and the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. And it is he, the one who reigns, the one with all authority, who sends us now to go into a world that we did not choose to be born into with problems we did not choose to have thrust upon us. But Father, we pray that you would keep us faithful, 
Keep us faithful by singing and trusting that you are the God who has gained the victory. You are the God who is with us, and you are the God who will come again and set all things right. Be with us. Encourage us as you send us back out into our lives and all of their challenges in the week to come. We trust you and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.